Welcome to the A Better Way to A podcast with Jordan and Andrew. This week, we are here with Deviant Olaf. Hey, hey. How thanks for doing? coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been, as we were batting it about, like we've had this on the calendar for a while because everyone's schedule's nuts. So I've been looking forward to this for months. Same, same. I've been podcast edging this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and now you can finally finish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Just, you have to uh, call us daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I thought we were going to try to be good. <laughs> Wait, you just said your, your friend's kid was going to watch this. No uh, swearing, totally but we're fine. talking about edging. <laughs> yes. You'll find out when you're older. It's when you use a ruler to draw very straight lines. Oh, exactly. What did, you, exactly. what did you think we were talking about? Yeah, yeah. weirdo. God. Okay. Do you, do you go by Deviant, Deve, or Olaf? Door numbers one and two are the most common that people would voluntarily walk through. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. All right. Dave, tell us a little bit about your professional background as much as you're willing to talk yeah. publicly. So my profession's a weird one, man. It's I've tripped over I don't think backwards. It's weird. I went to school just, with network security guys. <laughs> I, I think that what you do is completely normal. Yeah. Well, I started doing that, right? I started out as just working in in IT and InfoSec, and that's a career that is very beneficial and fruitful to a lot of people. Loads of my friends are in InfoSec and doing sysadmin and network admin stuff, and that's fine. But I was really interested in physical hardware. And for the longest time, I mean like physical locks and lock picking, that was just a hobby, which is a very common pastime in the hacker world. Like you see a lot of people picking locks, even before we started running these workshops at big events like DEF CON, there would just be like, lockpicking at MIT, where my ex went to MIT, and they would, like, their stories of her, like, going through the steam tunnels and stuff. So lockpicking was, like, a fun thing that people did, but nobody really was making a big career out of it. And I remember this, this story I've told once or twice before, right? I was consulting with air quotes, which means I was between jobs, but I was still doing some of the occasional IT work here and there and fixing things, and there was a law firm that said, hey, I think we need an IT consultant. And the reason this was is because their actual sysadmin like, just quit one day. He just got angry and stormed out and just freaking left. And people were like, oh, man, I think, um, I think we should probably... That's not good, right? He was our only IT guy. What are we supposed to do? <laughs> Who's going to admin this, the yeah. sys? I just told this story to another, another dude. So people who have heard that broadcast, like he's got no fucking safe stories. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, like they called me in. <laughs> And the, the crux of it was, like, the IT stuff was easy. I just had to, like, use this little NT boot tool to, like, restore access on these boxes. But getting to the IT room, was it was locked. And instead of them paying a locksmith, I was waiting for the. I was like, you know, instead of paying a dude, like, can I just look at your door? And I just popped the door open and got in. And this big, like, it's a law firm that has, like, they don't know if their data is secure. It would have been a crisis day. But they were way more interested in this stupid little door lock than they were in my full write-up of, like, everything's fine with your servers. And they had me back. And then another, there was a car dealership in town that knew him. And so then we did a little security and analyst job on this car dealership. And, yeah, it was my buddy Bobak and I, who both been lock pickers and doing, doing Hacker World stuff for ages. And we're like, man, we could just do this, I think. And thank goodness he had a business. One of our companies is called The Core Group. 
stands for consulting, operations, research, and engineering. It sounds like we're a company of a thousand plus people, but it's just a couple <laughs> dudes. But yeah, he had he had been going much as we talked about going to Shot Show, right? In the lock world, the Aloha, the Associated Lockpicks Locksmiths of America show, the Aloha is the big trade show. And when he was in college, Bobak would like go to Aloha, and he wanted to feel like he was legit. So he and his college roommate they made like polo shirts with little logos, and they made business cards and said the core group because you could be anybody. And but they're like meeting people, and so when he and I started to work together on actual consulting, on physical, like, hey, how is our building secured? So the core group was actually an established company that had industry relationships. Bobic starts calling up these big, big suppliers and vendors of crazy tools that he had met as a college kid. And he's like, hey, yeah, you know, Barrett, yeah, Barrett, Barrett Brockage, yeah, yeah, it's Bobic. We met at uh, the Aloha show. Yeah, Bobic from the core group, you remember us, us. You know, it's like as a company. But we were like, this, na- this name is really working. So we had this bit, we kind of had this business because he had a company and we had this skill set. And then we started getting a reputation as being the guys who can like tell you, can people break in? And then as I had been giving a lot of talks at hacker cons and at other like security events, and then I started running trainings, which man, I look at the old days of what constituted a training. It's grown so much. Nowadays, we train, as you've mentioned, firefighting, we train a lot of first responders now in graceful entry on non-priority calls. We train about covert entry and people will come to the class to learn and they'll say, man, I wonder if we're vulnerable. Can we hire you guys to come like break into our build? And we're like, you <laughs> yeah. just learned how, sucker. Like, what, what was I training you for? Yeah, but some you people, do it. They're like, because politics. Like, well, if I tell management that there's a problem, they're not going to believe it because I'm internal. We would need to bring an external voice in. I'm like, okay, we'll come break into your stuff. So yeah, I, the TLDR is I, my job is breaking into buildings and teaching other people how to break into buildings. And it's fun. It's really, really great. And there's other stuff that's not as sexy sounding. Like I'm, I'm a government locksmith. I'm a government safe technician. I do a lot of GSA safe and vault work, which I guess some people think that's cool. To me, it's just... Yeah, I think that's pretty dope. You know, it's, it's fun. I go on a lot of military bases and the sanitized language of our trade is I will neutralize a container if somebody like forgot the combination or lost the combination, which that sounds like bomb squad similar. shit. It's fun. It's great. There's, <laughs> there's a, a whole trophy wall at one of our offices of just drawer heads of these classified document containers that are all like <laughs> chopped and drilled apart. And I just mount them like, like rhinos and tie. I'm not a hunter who would put up trophies on the wall, but I'll put my old safe parts on the wall. If like, yeah, that's that, awesome. was the, that was at the secret service office. That was at the DOD. That was at this building. That was at this base. That is super cool. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely like, a, I don't know what would be the a better way to a equivalent of that. Probably like, a, I don't know, shitty comments that we've gotten people ratioed <laughs> print, on. Print them out on your... Uh, <laughs> I've thought about printing out like really funny, bad comments people have made where they just made themselves look like idiots. But anyway, it's not about us. It's about you. That's awesome, and, man. In the ballistic sounds- world, it would be like if you had a career just doing ballistic testing, I guess. Like your job yeah. is to put shit down range and just shoot at it all day. Yeah. And measure how much penetration you got. And your yeah. job is just like free ammo at that point. <laughs> yeah, I go to work with a smile. We'll say it that way. I, I go That's to work cool. with a smile every day. Well, it's That's great when really you cool. enjoy what you do. Yeah. And so does that ever have any... Because I, I remember you being sort of like in the firearms orbit for a long time. Does your work ever cross over into firearms? Or is yeah. that just you're personally into firearms? So fortunately, because anything you do for it, once you start getting paid for it, it's like, you don't want to do it on the weekend. 
So like, I don't pick locks anymore for fun because it's my job now. Fortunately, using guns is just a hobby for me when we're just sports shooting or hunting or whatever. I have definitely consulted on the building of like vaults and things like that. So firearm storage and safe storage, uh, I do a lot of work on evaluating safes. And we can talk if you want all day about how to store firearms or how to ship firearms. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine, we're not going to drop, I don't like dropping names like, oh, drop this famous person's name. Social media would know this person. They have an extensive firearm collection of many historical guns. And like, yeah, it's fun to get a phone call. And they're like, hey, we're going to move the collection here. Like, are these locks good or how could I build this? I'm like, yeah, I got you, buddy. Here's here's some shit you should look up. Yeah. Hell Sick. Yeah. It's cool to be the guy for when people have questions like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a gun store that has since gone out of business, but they used to be right up the street from me called Alamo Tactical. And two times at two different locations, they were broken into and had firearms stolen off of their display wall. I don't understand how that is so possible. Like if you have, yeah, I'm sure as somebody who's ignorant on the topic, I'm I'm sure you could totally explain this to me. Probably Mm -hmm. most gun stores probably just have a regular security alarm with a regular door lock. But at least the ones that I've gone to, but... Yeah, maybe you'll get the bars out front. That's about it. Yeah. And, you know, alarms and security devices, they're really... The difference between residential and commercial is really big because in the commercial world, it's about a response. It's like, okay, the alarm's going to go off. There should be... We're in, like, a major area. There's going to be a response, an authoritative response, and there's going to be insurance that picks up the slack. And at home people often somehow think that they just need a big, big, big super steel box and then nothing ever, like, that's it. That's that's all you need. And like, no, like, security is just time and effort. If you have very valuable stuff, it could be guns, it could be gold bars, I don't know. It could be, you got your Pappy Van Winkle collection, right? Your bottle's all in a safe. Yeah. But like, if someone really wants that stuff, they're going to do the math. They're going to say, how much time and effort and cost of my expenditure does it take to get in there? And what's the risk? And if you tell me, well, I bought this really great safe, and I say, all right, do you have like even I don't really like Ring or Blink or any of these companies. Like, do you have any? Do you have any Nest cameras? Do you have any cameras at all? Do you have an alarm? Do you literally have any insurance on it? Like, people have gun collections, and they're like, well, I have like homeowners insurance. I'm like, that doesn't cover guns. You need a separate policy, and it's going to be cheap. So yeah, you, yeah, it's layers. It's all layers. Yeah, I've got a valuable personal property insurance yep. that specifically covers mm-hmm. firearms up to a, uh, but only up to a Same. certain amount. Mm-hmm. And for really valuable ones, or not even really valuable ones, but ones that I want specifically covered, I have to like submit information about it. Mm-hmm. You know, well, so it's it's fairly inexpensive for those policies, mm-hmm. which I which is why I'm so surprised that more people don't have them. I think I pay like eight dollars a month. Yeah, for for my. Is this like it? through USAA maybe or something? Yes, Their rates actually, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly yeah, through same. USAA. Yep, same with us. And yeah, I pay like $8 a month and I've got like, I'm sure I have to update it, but I'm pretty sure I have like $2,500 worth of coverage, which I know some people are listening to this and they're like, what is that one gun? And well, but, I, you, but you only have like an AR-15. And- I have an AR and a couple pistols. Like that's, mm, yeah. and well, actually I've got a Ruger PCC and you know, anyway, it's, I don't have 20 grand worth of firearms Sure. and sure. 2,500 bucks would get me back to where I was minus yeah. my AR, which is now outlawed, unfortunately in my state. But yeah, that makes total sense. And like, I'm sure if you have a big safe, but you don't have any way, you were mentioning response. If you don't have any way to connect that signal that something was happening to cops or like dogs or anything like that, mm-hmm. then the risk is significantly lower and then it's just time and effort. 
Yeah. Yeah. So would you point? You're talking about like ring cameras, but you know, there's other, there's like IP cameras. There's all sorts of mm-hmm. different surveillance technology. Would you just like point one of those at your safe? I wouldn't trust pointing it directly at the safe because I wouldn't want the camera catching the entry of a combination. Sure. But so like our safes are all in the basement and there's only one route of access to the basement. So you can't get in or out of our basement without being direct dead ass on camera. And when we're not home, because when we're home, we do actually use one of those services. It's internet connected. I'm not wild about it, but they integrate very well. They're, they're very easily run with an app. And when we're home, they're just powered off, like hard powered off on a switch. And when we leave, like we flip the switch and all the cameras wake up and come on. And there's like any motion in that area is going to immediately trip an alert to multiple people. And we'll be like, oh, wow, there's a bad thing happening. Let's respond right away. And then there's other things. There's other like hidden sensors that are in and around the safes as well that I can talk about. I won't tell you which ones I have. People listen, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's very, it would be very hard to like touch. And ask yourself, like if you're gun safe, listener at home, if I was like in your house, let's say we're not walking up on the street and somebody watching me mess with the door. If I was in your house, legit, maybe you have a landlord. Maybe you rent and your landlord's literally allowed to come in to your property. Could that person be touching your safe? If you're out of town in Disney World or something for a week with your family, could someone just be touching your safe, sitting on it, eating a sandwich, sitting on top of your safe for 10 hours? Would you know? Would you not know? Do you have any cameras? Do you have anything at all? If you don't, that's a person that in theory could be making a ton of goddamn noise and debris and mess. And it ain't no safe anywhere out there that's lasting 10 hours. Even at a jewelry store, like a big, you know, the highest rated safes out there are measured in minutes, not hours. So like a wow. one hour safe. Yeah, like an ISM Super Diamond is like a TXTL 60. And that's 60 minutes of resistance. Because if someone wants to get in and they have the freedom to make all the noise they want and just to come and go with tools, they're getting in. You that, need an alarm, kind of, you need yeah. something. What kind of skill level do you need to get into a safe like that in 60 minutes though? More than a guy watching YouTube, I'll say that. You need to know things about drill points. You need to know high-speed steel versus ball buster bits versus... There's a whole lot of, like, industry trade knowledge. Yeah. But it's going to happen. Like, it's going to happen if somebody is unattended. Or, frankly, let's say you got a kid who comes over and waters the plants, right? You got a teenager in the neighborhood because they're cheap, and they walk around, they water your plants. Well, if you don't have a camera on the basement door, and they go down to the basement... They don't need power tools and a bunch of like noise. They can just try combinations slowly yeah. over time until the safe opens if they're in your house for an hour every day for years. Yeah, that's such a funny thing to think about. I mean, because if you consider knowing somebody enough to know their pertinent, because I would guess the majority of people don't pick random numbers for combinations. They pick numbers that are significant to them or like the default numbers that come with safes. You could definitely figure that out eventually, unless it was truly a random number, in which case you just, I'm sure there are ways to do that also. Yeah. Well, how much of a trade-off is like, um, I'm not going to say what kind of safe that I have, but I'm aware of safes with electronic locks that Mm -hmm. have like, if you put in the wrong code three times, it sets off an alarm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So penalty mode is a much more common feature. Instead of, some do just alarm and they won't shut up, but that's a lot of high user friction. The user is going to call the manufacturer and be like, my dog's tail, I have a Labrador, and he was smacking the safe, and now it's just blaring. I don't. Your safe sucks. What the user wants is, okay, after three or four wrong attempts, you got to stop for 15 minutes. Yeah. 
which would slow an attacker. But again, if it's the kid coming over every day to like feed the cat, that's, or if you have like a shitball roommate, like how many of us just have in our lives when we were in our 20s, yeah. like yeah. you had that one roommate, that's why you got the safe. You're like, I don't trust this guy with my guns. I'm going to put them in the safe. That's just a person who could be there. Right? It's just slow them down, yeah. So I personally prefer mechanical locks and cameras. Also, all those electronic locks, there's loads of exploits for them. We don't get super in the weeds, but like we have a tool. It's called a, it's called a little black box. There's a number of exploits that involve power spiking or, again, super industry. It's called differential power analysis. For those of you who are techie, essentially, when you're reading memory like off of a, like a NAND chip, like off of a flash memory chip, it costs, literally costs more voltage, picovolts. It costs more voltage to read a one out of memory than a zero. So in a lot of these safes, they wake up when you start to like press buttons, they have to fetch that code out of memory to compare it to whatever you're about to enter. And the boot up process, if you can measure the power, you do differential power analysis, you can just get the code. There's their tools that are government tools. <laughs> so that's instantly. That's instantly. so lit. That's, I have chills. Like this is, oh man, this is nuts. And what about, what about key only uh, security cabinets? Those keys can't be very secure. I mean, there's only Typically so many not. keys. Typically not. A lot, and a lot of those, as you hit it on cabinets. And not, none of us are poo-pooing. Like literally, if, if you just have like a rifle or something and the value, here's another great one, the 10% rule. Jordan, you mentioned that your whole collection consisting of two or three pieces might be like $2,500. If you put that inside of $250 worth of protection, no one's going to sneeze at you. That might just be like going and getting a stack-on cabinet from, you know, the Bass Pro Shop. Is it the greatest thing? No. Is it going to maybe prevent a toddler from having an ND? Hopefully. So yeah, are those cabinets kind of weak against a crowbar? Yeah. Are their keys probably very copyable or pickable locks? Probably, yeah. But you can't spend, just like we talked about preparing for disasters, you can't spend all your resources in one bucket. Like, I'm going to prepare for the apocalypse by getting a whole wall of rifles. Like, that's dumb. You can't spend all your money on protecting, like, the one rifle. Because, again, like, maybe invest in training. Maybe invest in healthcare supplies and medicines and bandages around your house. You only, we only have so much money in our pockets these days. So I'm not yeah. going to ever sneeze at somebody's choices, especially if they are constrained by economics. They're, even if they're thinking about safe storage at all, they're doing better than maybe their neighbor's doing. For yeah. sure. And that's kind of how we started was, when we lived in our first house, I didn't have a safe because I had a handgun and I don't think I had a rifle yet. And I, it was only us in the house and our house was locked all the time. So I never worried about anybody breaking in. And I was also just like naivete at the time. I was like, eh, it is what it is. I'm putting it in my drawer, but when I'm not carrying it because it's for home defense and all that fun stuff. And when we moved into an apartment, I was like, I think it's time to get a safe. And by safe, I mean gun cabinet. Mm -hmm. Because for me, it was more of like, if somebody is in, like my landlord, somebody is in my apartment, I don't want them to be able to reach out and touch my guns because mm -hmm. that's a liability for me. And yeah. if they're, yeah. somebody's breaking into it, and we were also on the third floor, so I was like, there's no way I'm getting a safe up three flights of stairs mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. in a 100-year-old house. Absolutely. So it made sense at the time. And now that it's in the basement, I can definitely consider something else like that. But now our exterior door is super narrow. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I've always fantasized of having a room that I can just lock the door with yeah. some fancy lock and have right. a safe, safe that I can room. walk into. But, like, I've seen people the, turn closets into those. But the problem but with that is that... It's the exterior walls that you're... But it's not, it doesn't, no, actually, probably an interior wall is even weaker. 
Well, that's what I mean. Because most people, it's just drywall, studs, drywall. There's nothing in between. So if you're turning like a room, and, and I thought about this because I, I, you know, we were doing big renovations to our house, renovation, repair. You know, we bought an old farmhouse. And the room that is now my office, we had considered doing the expense to turn it into like a vault room. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge, it's so cost prohibitive securing a, a room like this. And if you, if all you do is have a really nice door, he's holding up a binder. Is this the... I mean, I went through skiff training, right, for skiff construction. So, like, yeah, we could talk all about, like, barrier mesh and, like... Sure. Uh, now, most of this is, like, for EM resistance, but... No, but, yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's I've all... I've consulted on building rooms like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. And it just becomes so cost prohibitive to the point where it's, like, even if all you're going to do is, like, have a nice strong door and a lock, like, that's kind of the same thing in my mind as, like, the, the stack on security cabinet, which is not nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just, like... You know, you have to understand that if somebody wants to get in there, they can just take a sledgehammer and go through. Kick a hole through a wall. Yeah. Yeah. The process to avoid that for any decent, any like normal sized room to like armor all of the interior and exterior walls and the ceiling because we have attic chase above. It just was like, you know, I I was pulling my hair out over it. It was just not going to happen. The silver lining in all of these stories is we talked about how low the rates are. I mean, we all have the benefit of USAA, I realize, but even conventional civilian insurance, like the rates are really low for these valuable personal property policies because the incidents are actually really rare, right? The incidents of huge gun theft, like the, like gun theft doesn't usually occur from any locked anything. Guns get stolen out of drawers and trunks of cars. That's where most of the trade in stolen guns comes from. It doesn't come from the stack on cabinet or something or the safe, even the cheap safe. like. Yeah, that's. I think I heard a figure something like fifty thousand guns were stolen out of cars last year, which is, sounds like a high number. But then you think about the amount of guns that are just in circulation, and you're like, all right, that's not unfeasible. Man, but it's How- uh, dude. When you get a gun stolen, it fucking sucks. It feels like shit. That happened to me in. It was way pre-COVID, and what had <laughs> happened was I was out of town. I was at a shooting competition. It was at IDPA and. It was 2016 because I have my trophy up there. Uh, it was 2016 IDPA and nice humble brag. Nice. Yeah, well, nice. okay. So no big deal. Uh, my trophy tells me when it was fir- oh. first place of three in the novice class. So <laughs> you know, hell yeah. Oh yeah. So I was out of town doing that. I had forgotten that I had. I was in the habit at the time. I had a P238, also like P238 with a little mm-hmm. clip that I would when I was wearing athletic shorts. That's what I would. Would carry that around, and if I was going into some place that you know guns were not allowed, I'm a good citizen sometimes, and I'll I'll stash it in my car. Some confluence of events led to me forgetting to take it out of my car when I got home. Mm-hmm. But I do lock my car, but I didn't lock the glove box. And then I went. I was in a scramble to get out of town, so I, I got out of town. I took an Uber to the airport, and I flew with my gun. Uh, thank you, Dave, and uh, my wife drove my car like one one time and she happened to forget to lock the doors on the car when she was at home mm-hmm. and she was actually awake at three in the morning when this happened and was none the wiser because this dude was quiet he had hit up a whole bunch of cars in the neighborhood and he hopped our fence to get into our yard Oof. which like our house is in a weird place you have to really mean it to get into mm-hmm. our yard so he hopped our fence to get into our yard rifled through both our cars and I guess found my uh, my pistol in the in the glove Damn. box and absconded Damn. with it, and I haven't. It has not turned up. It has not turned up in a crime. Most likely, it's rotting away in some someone else's know. glove box. 
man. And I, yeah. I had a, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, it sucks. And I, I just like, I'm waiting for the day that someone's like, yeah, we found this at a murder scene or something. Mm. Some like kid got shot in the head and, it's, and here's your gun back, you know? And it's just That's awful. Yeah, it hangs over you, you know? Losing, losing a gun to theft really fucking sucks. If you're a reasonable person, you're going to beat yourself up about it for the rest of your mm-hmm. life. But I, I did have a trigger job on that gun, so I hope somebody shoots their dick off with it. <laughs> I, hope so, I hope somebody that's not supposed to have it doesn't put the safety on and then fucking shoots their shoots their nuts off. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm glad you had to elaborate. That's what you that's what you fucking get from. So it's so probably by now yeah. who, whoever has it by now probably didn't steal it. They probably it's just getting traded around. Fifty thousand guns, yeah, stolen I've, from cars. And I can't tell you where I saw that from. So. Do your own research, but that I do remember seeing that and thinking, like, that makes sense. Like, the FBI know. doesn't, I don't think they keep this statistic, and I wish they would. How many of those 50,000 cars had like a Punisher skull, Sig Sauer, yes. like cold yep. bumper stickers, yep. and yes. decals? It's like somebody shared some on Instagram. It's like, look at this Jeep in my town. And it was a photo, and like the top, it was all these like tactical stuff on it. And the top comment was like, Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Those stickers all actually say the same thing, which is you have a high chance of stealing a gun if you smash these yeah. windows. Yeah. Yeah, Molin Mabe actually the means f- free gun in, <laughs> free gun, in yeah. Latin. <laughs> free gun inside. Yeah. I actually wanted to talk to you about flying with a gun because it's something that I have not done just out of, like, being uncomfortable with doing it. And I know there's a perfectly legal and reasonable way to do it that won't land mm-hmm. you in jail. But Bro, what are you getting at? What is this going to be? I just want to know how to do it. Like, so say you're going. Texas made it legal everywhere, but go on. Yes, but so this is the thing. It's like this is the thing. Like, you can fly with a gun anywhere, but like, I can't. I the reason I didn't bring my own guns. What did I miss something? No, your listeners are cracking up right now. It's all good. Why? Because I'm an asshole and don't. No, you can know. Google. <laughs> is that, Google Lawrence v. Texas. We'll take the time. Just go ahead. And, okay. Just go, Lawrence, just go ahead and go Lawrence v. Texas. He said Lawrence v. Texas made it legal everywhere because you were taking yeah, you forever know. to get to the point. Oh, God. <laughs> Dude, he fucking smoked you. <laughs> I fucking hate you. He fucking you. got you. You walked right into that, buddy. <laughs> Lawrence Hey, v. nobody Texas. breathed a bigger sigh of relief than me, so it's all good. <laughs> It means Lawrence it doesn't v. Matter. Texas. Yeah. It invalidated sodomy law across the United States, making same-sex sexual activity. Yes, you can have sex with people of any gender oh. in any state of the union. Yeah, yeah. Because the joke, Jordan, the joke being that he, he was saying, like, well, I don't know if we could talk about it, but I really yeah. do. Some people are curious. Is it legal? And I was like, no, 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 it's legal <laughs> everywhere now. You're good. No That's worries. Awesome. That's awesome. You were probably yeah, getting I into totally, flying with firearms. I was rolling with that. Like I had, like I totally knew what you were saying. It was some like <laughs> monumental firearms case. If somebody wants to go from point mm-hmm. A to point B and they're flying and they want to take their yes. guns with them, tips, tricks, how to do it. Yeah. And not so, yes. end up being bitten by a gun sniffing dog. I have become this sort of font of knowledge, I guess, from flying with firearms because I got curious about it long ago. I really do miss those days of being when you're young enough to be bold and have very few seizable assets in court that you'll just like, I'll test the system. You're like, whatever, who's, who's, what's, what's going to... Nowadays, we're all super... Like, I don't want people to take my house and take me from my kids. But I read the, read the books. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to get jammed up if I do this. And I started flying with my gun to various events. And then I started flying... Even if I wasn't going to a shooting event, I was like, no, I, well, I have a carry gun. Like, oh, whatever. My, I got the Florida permit when it was valid in more states. Then they changed the laws a bit. And I was like, no, why not? And I wasn't even carrying everywhere, but like, just keep the gun in the luggage. Why not? So I started amassing 
this sort of big repository of experiences. And to this day, my wife and I are on about 100 flight segments a year at this point. And for me, they pretty much all involve a gun in my checked bag, just because I love gathering the data. And in a nutshell, yes, you can ask the FAA, and you can ask the airlines, they'll tell you the same thing. Flying with a firearm is absolutely legal in checked baggage, unless you are federal flight officer program, et cetera, et cetera. Flying with a firearm in your checked bag doesn't involve a lot of craziness. It used to be a little bit more of a to-do, and now it's just become more mundane. As long as you follow certain principles that are mandated by the FAA, and all the airlines have their own policies that are pretty much, they flow forth from the top, top principles. One is that the gun must be declared. It can't just be thrown in there like it, nobody knows it's in there. So when you're at the airport, there is a process. And technically, it's a, almost every airline does a written declaration, which is a little card that you just sign your name on. But the declaration is to, be, to, to prove that, yes, you told the airline there's a gun in there. And for those listening at home, like, you know, be smart. If you're dealing with some person who looks like they've never seen a gun and they're going to, you know, be like, hey, I got a gun, buddy. You're like, oh, uh, do you have a declaration card? I need to declare <laughs> that I'm flying with a firearm today. Two, the firearm must be unloaded. And this constitutes the four rules of safety style of unloaded, like no bullets in the gun. I've had airline workers not understand that, like, they've told me, that magazine, get that out of the gun. I'm like, the magazines, you saw me rack the slide back. Like, it's an empty magazine. They said, no, it's loaded if there's a magazine in the gun. I, re I read that. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, whatever, who cares? <sighs> so, but yes, the gun has to be unloaded, meaning no ammunition in the gun at all. And lastly, there can be ammunition, but how the ammunition is stored, this, this gets into things like in the event of disaster with, you know, they don't want like loose ammo rolling around if your luggage gets banged around or falls down. So ammunition, the FAA simply says it can't be infinite amount. It has to be 11 pounds of ammunition, which is actually a lot. You could shoot a whole competition on 11 yeah. pounds of ammunition. You could almost... Not quite a brutality match, but you could shoot a two-gun match pretty easily. But the ammunition has to be essentially not free and loose. Like, you can't roll in with a plastic bag. I was at a match just the other day talking to someone who was my buddy, I think my buddy Marcel, who's a speed competition shooter, and he was saying that he looked at the website and it said, must be in manufacturer packaging, but he was doing reloads because he's a shooter, right? So he had like a giant Ziploc bag, and they were like, no, it's not the manufacturer's box. And he's like, I am the manufacturer. But, you know, if you're going to do that now, like get a Dylan <laughs> yeah. box or an I'm MCM box or the original box is fine. You can use magazines because they are a container designed, some other airlines say, must be in a container designed to hold small arms ammo. Well, a magazine is. As long as it's not exposed. Many times, this is where we get into different airlines. Some of them will say the, the rounds can't be loose. Others will say the rounds can't be touching. They have to be separated. Other airlines will say they can't be exposed which like a PMAG with a dust cover, I've used that. But for best case scenario, best mileage, if they're in like a little Plano box or a little Dylan box that has little individual like egg crate separators, you know, you drop them, you drop each round in, you box it up, that's going to be fine everywhere you go. If this is locked, and the case, the case has to be a hard-sided case. I don't think anyone needs to know that, but like you can't lock a duffel bag. If you're in a locked container and the gun's unloaded and it's safe, the airlines care about, is somebody going to steal this? And if there's a disaster with the bag, is there any way a round could go off? That's really all they care about. If you got that covered and you declare to the airline during check-in, I'm following these rules, because they'll grill you. They, they click, click as you're checking in. They have a little prompt that pops up and they'll quiz you. 
And if you follow the script, they say, okay, you less than 11 pounds of ammo, and it's locked, and it's a hard-sided case. Okay, please sign this. You're pretty set. They used to, at airports, do a lot of administrative handling, like at the check-in counter. I remember this. That's all thrown out now. All the major airlines have dumped that policy. Your attest, because they would say, well, we don't want anybody to, what if someone actually has a gun? It's actually loaded. And when they said it was unloaded, that's, we don't want that. The airlines quickly realized, again, this is just math. The far greater likelihood is an accident or, there have been incidents. I think no one's ever been harmed, but there's been rounds fired into like the counter at airports by somebody just dicking around with their slide. So the airlines all learned, if someone says it's unloaded and they're wrong, the TSA is going to figure that out on the through-line scanner. Let them deal with a federal situation and not us as a private party. They declared it was unloaded. That was good enough for us. So nowadays, if you check in and an airline worker says, hey, I need to see the gun, they're probably not following actual modern corporate policy. You shouldn't, now, you never know. Your mileage may vary, but you shouldn't expect it. What you should expect is, and here's the wild card, the TSA still has to screen your luggage. Now, this can happen with a hand scan. This can happen with an x-ray through-line scan. There's all different ways to do it, but every airport is set up differently. Some airports will go from most desirable to least desirable. Some airports, like it could be small. I used to live in a little town in Montana. Literally, you're at the check-in counter and you turn, and there's a dude in a blue shirt with a fake badge, like at a metal table in the check-in hall. Little teeny, boom. There's other, like I fly in and out of DC all the time. You can fly in and out of all 50 states, well, 49 states, Anybody out there want to guess? What do you think is the state you can't fly in and out of with your guns? I would say say Hawaii, but I don't think it's that. It's a good guess. Not a very gun-friendly state. Everyone thinks New York. I have flown into and out of JFK, LGA. I've done that. The only state is Delaware. Delaware? Delaware has no commercial airport. You really fucked me this time. Yeah, but like small towns or DC, I fly in and out of DC all the time. So like Dulles and National, they both have in the check-in hall, like you go to, you walk down a few yards and then there's like a little partition cubicle wall and behind it is like a through-line scanner and some tables. But like these are situations where you are talking to the TSA and they say, oh, is that a firearm here? I'll put you at the front of the queue in front of these golf clubs. And the TSA knows you're there. So if they get a green light, like they'll just give you a thumbs up. All right, we're putting it, you're good. If there's a problem, if it alarms, because they, oh, is there a laptop in here? They'll say, hey, mister, I need your key. And that's the most desirable when they know you're talking to them. Now, some airports, there will be a screening room, but it's, you're not in the room, but they know you are right there. The screening room is just on the other side of a wall. Sometimes this is referred to as the, quote, straight belt. So there's like luggage belts that are long and windy. And then there's, if you've ever traveled with a giant dog kennel, maybe you have a dog that couldn't be in the cabin, and they'll, they'll take that dog to special screen. So you put the kennel on a, quote, straight, because you can't have the dog, like, going down a hill in the back of the airport. So there's one belt. It's all of, like, six feet long, and it goes from one side of a wall to the other side of the wall, usually through, like, those rubber curtains. And that's where your gun, your gun might go in the straight belt for special baggage or oversized baggage. And oftentimes you're escorted maybe by someone from your airline and they'll sort of stick their head through the curtain and be like, hey, anybody back there with a firearm? And then your, your gun goes six feet. And then the TSA is dealing with it. And if they need to open it, they know you are standing on the other side of, and they like, they'll pop out of a door and they'll say, hey, we got an alarm. We have to swab your Sony PlayStation that you're traveling with or something. 
So that's not great because what's going to happen is they're going to say, can I have the key, please? And they're going to go back in that door. And then a few minutes later, they're going to come out and they're going to say like, here's your key. And I promise I didn't steal anything. And they probably didn't. If they've, you're, you're looking at them, yeah. you saw a human, you saw a face, you saw maybe a name tag. Maybe they didn't pack it all correctly and you're going to get to your destination and be like, look what this asshole did. But that's also not bad. The part that is most likely the recipe for trouble is when you're at an airport, you've said, I have to declare a firearm. And they say, here is your card. It's less than 11 pounds of ammo. It's on, okay, it's unloaded. Okay, snap, snap, lock, lock. And then the person turns, plops it on the big moving belt and it whisks away to parts unknown. And you say, yeah. they have to screen that, right? And they say, oh yeah, well, what you do is you wait here for 10 minutes and uh, if no one pages you, you're good. They'll call you or we'll yeah. call you. And yep. it's like, no, F that noise, man. That's, it's every time I've had an incident, it's been that kind of a scenario. What I recommend is people, you wait the 10 minutes respectfully, then you go back up. And usually you surprise, like, oh, you're still here? You're the, you're the gun person right now. That, wait, I didn't hear anything. They're like, please get on the phone, call the bag room, call someone. I want to know what's happening. I need positive confirmation that my firearm has cleared. Because if you're traveling and you don't have TSA compliant locks, because a lot of times I won't use TSA, I'll use proper, you're allowed to use proper padlocks if you want, which I encourage. If they've got a bag back there, and they're like, well, there's locks on it, but there's an alarm, but I don't know who, because if the airline doesn't have a good channel of communication with the TSA, which is far too common, you can wind up with cut locks, you can wind up with your case not getting loaded. So yeah, try to think ahead. If you can put your phone number, like I know people that put their name and number like right on the outside of their bag, but it's, it's a crapshoot. The best thing you can ever do is if they try to put your bag on the long windy belt, be like, um, no, 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 no. This has to go to the special area. This has to go to the special screening room. And I think, no, we don't do that here. If you're like, no, I spoke to someone. It's Use your social engineering skills. Every airport's got to be able to handle a dog in a kennel, right? Yeah. Every airport can do that. Every airport. And I, if you're worried about this first time trying it, listener, <laughs> call an airport. And don't say you're flying with a gun. Call the airport you're going to use and say, we have you know, a 70-pound German Shepherd, and he's going to be in a kennel. What and he's flying with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's armed. He's saying, what's your procedure? Where do you, we my, go? Yeah. My dog has a that. gun and he is not taking his medication. Yeah. <laughs> I learned, you, apparently you can't medicate an animal for flight if they ask you. It's like a trick question, right? They say, has this dog been sedated? And you're like not allowed to say yes. Really? Uh, I, I believe so. There's dog owners out there, tell us in the comments if we're wrong. You're, you're allowed to give them herbal crap, like rescue remedy or whatever. But you're not right. supposed to say my dog has been medicated. Why? Because they don't want them to like it, have it's a reaction a to the medicine. Yeah, I don't know. I, that, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's weird. So those that's what you're going to expect. And okay. I usually you're fine. Ninety nine times out of a hundred, I'm fine. I know that on YouTube there's videos because I just started recording a lot of my interactions when it doesn't go fine. But usually your interaction is you get to your destination, the case is there, you're good. Sometimes they'll pull the case. I actually like this. They'll pull the case into the baggage office. It's not thrown out on the belt. And you're looking you're like, oh my God, where's my gun case? Go over to the baggage office and say, hey, I just came in on Delta 2929. Is my gun here? Like, oh yeah, you have this Pelican case. Can I see some ID? Yeah, here you go. And you, you get it. That's cool. So it seems like it's pretty straightforward. It should be. It's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. for somebody who's never done it, it's a little intimidating because mm -hmm. I imagine going up to the teller just or, sweating bullets oh, dude, God. and just being like how do i all right be cool be cool i have a gun fuck mm -hmm. and like just it going the way that you would think it would go just because i know me and i know that like as as carl put it oh no it was russell that i have nervous chihuahua energy yeah. 
a knife fight is a crazy deadly encounter. But if you get like foam rubber training knives, you and your buddies can like practice knife skills. And because there's no chance of harm, all that nervous chihuahua energy goes away. You can just participate in the process, right? If you want to fly with firearms, get a flare gun, get a startup, get anything that is declarable as a firearm because that's an ex- that will expel a projectile by means of combustible propellant. A flare gun has to be declared. Do it that way for your first couple trips to grandma's house for Thanksgiving. And then you like know the process. You know your home airport and it gets, it becomes normal. Yeah, that, that, I don't see myself buying a flare gun, but that definitely makes sense. <laughs> I'll most likely just fly with my guns and, and be yeah. like, Dave, I tried it and it worked you out. Thank you. Fucking uh, one of those Spikes Tactical 37 millimeter flare guns that looks Fuck like yes. a fucking grenade launcher. Like, That's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> check that and just having to talk some poor TSA agent and to be like, no, it's not a grenade launcher. No, no, I promise yeah, it shoots it's for soda bird cans bombs. only. Yeah, so it sounds, it sounds, not only manageable, but actually fairly easy when mm-hmm. everything goes right. It's, and It's been easy in my experience. However, it will make you nervous. Well, you know, and it's been a number of years since I've done it, but there was always some weirdness about it. You know, like everybody wanted to do it the right way. Everyone mm-hmm. was conscientious that I was a legal gun owner doing, because, you know, when you show up and you're like, hey, I'm declaring a firearm, you're already right off the bat. Like you're trying, you're trying to do it right, and they know you're trying to do it right. They're not like, look at this crazy guy here trying to shoot up the airport. So they know that you're trying to follow the rules, and they're trying to follow the rules too. But a lot of them don't know shit about guns, and a lot of them don't do this very often, and so they're not like well versed. And I've had like weirdness where here in San Antonio, I'm often taken into. They will take me and the gun or the, and the bag with the gun into a separate room. A TSA agent will come and like look at it. Mm-hmm. And I had one where she was like, I had one time where they wanted me to like unlock it and open it and like look mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And I opened it and she looked at it and she was like, uh, shit, what do I do? Um, I don't know. It looks <laughs> fine. Lock it back up. Um, yep, that's a gun. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. another, I had another one where he came in, he just asked me some questions and was like, all right, get it out of here. I had a time in, in Farmington, New Mexico, that same trip where I got my gun stolen at home, flying back, I had to wait at the baggage counter for 10 minutes for a TSA agent to come there to escort me to the room where they were going to inspect it. Mm-hmm. 10 minutes passed and nobody came, and the guy was like, all right, we're packing it up. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, 10 minutes went by, no TSA agent came, so like we can't make you wait any longer. We're wow. going to pack it up. And I'm like, <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I guess everything's kosher. Okay. We're just going to assume it is. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. And that That's was flying cool out of cool with us. Mm-hmm. So there's always, there's always something a little different. And it's always a little weird. So like, just, just you just have to try not to get tripped up in panic mm-hmm. when something doesn't go exactly the way you expect it. One of my friends, yeah. my friend uh, Kenny, he had a guy yeah. swab his gun mm-hmm. and put it through the little detector thing and it came back with gunshot residue. <laughs> Like, and the guy yeah. was like, he called his supervisor and was like, there's GSR on here. Yeah. And the supervisor was like, it's a gun, it's a you gun. fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so just like shit like that. Just try not to get tripped up in panic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just don't be the guy getting gunshot residue all over your clothes and then walking through the... Uh, no, dude, I, I had... I sure frequently okay. had GSR on my hands going through an airport. And if you say had, that really fast, it sounds like you're saying jizz. Just had jizz on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Swap this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Why are you making me walk through the black light? No. God damn it. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> no, but I would have, I would, I would pop a uh, gunshot residue, but this is Arizona, mm-hmm. but you'd see it on the screen. It would come up and they'd be like, whatever. Like fucking <laughs> doesn't matter. There's a couple, I have a great TSA, pass, you're talking about passenger screening there. This is going to be probably my video that I'll put out maybe on Monday. I literally was pulled, like sometimes they'll pull my backpack because of, there's like a bunch of stuff in there. This was someone who said, it looks like a corkscrew. This was in Florida somewhere. And I was like, yeah, I have, a, I have a little like eating and drinking kit with like forks and stuff. And I was, yeah, there's a corkscrew for wine, which is allowed. There are some corkscrews that have a foil cutter that have a little blade. You can't have those. But a regular corkscrew is fine. Really? And this, yeah. Yeah, that's the rule for the TSA. They have it wow. on like one of their sub pages. But this person was like looking through all my stuff. Oh, here it is. And she looks and she's like, okay, it's fine. And I said, it's this little food. It's like eating in hotels kit. So I have plasticware of chopsticks and the knife fork spoon. So she took like, I'm like, thank you for using those blue gloves that have touched 18 people's balls today. But like, she's putting my forks and stuff back away. I'm like, I'll just do it or I'll just burn it, whatever. But as she starts walking away, she's holding the butter knives. And I was like, um, excuse me, those are, those are mine. I need those too. She's like, no, these are knives. They can't go. And I said, they absolutely can. I'm not going to tell you you're a your job. But like, yes, they, they, I said, go ahead, please, and get a supervisor. Get the STSO, which dropped her jaw. She was like, what? Because it's 20 cents worth of plastic, right? Yeah. Like, why are you making a fight out of this? I'm like, oh, because... Because principles are a rich man's game, and I got the time. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, got, <laughs> gonna, I showed up early because I'm in dad mode, and like I got the time. So we get an STSO, and he tried to be nice. He's like, I'm so sorry. I got to tell you. It'll sound silly, but, sir, you see these are serrated? Because it, these are, you can't have serrated blades is what we learned in training. And I said, I, I had my phone. I was like, this is TSA.gov. You are not obliged. Like, this is your rodeo, pal. I'm like, this is your prerogative. But if we scroll to knives, it specifically says knives are not allowed except round-tipped butter knives or plastic butter knives. And he's like, yeah, damn, that's really hard. I don't know what to do here because I'm kind of default to my training about the serrations. And I said, again, you're going to make this call and I'm going to accept your call, but we're going to keep talking until I'm satisfied. I was like, I want you to tell me if a plastic butter knife is allowed, has there ever been on the face of this earth, a plastic butter knife that you have seen that doesn't have those little serrations in them, every plastic butter knife that has ever existed, including in He's prison, right. has those yeah. little serrations. So what is this rule referring to, if not that? And eventually the guy relented. Actually, what he did is he said, I'm going to scan them again. So he took the butter <laughs> knives in the dog dish and ran it through again. And my wife was standing there. She's like, we've proven you didn't bake a cake into the knife, I guess. Yeah. So he gives me this crap back. And what could not have been better is, again, we have footage of that, but we get on the plane and it's a cross-country flight, right? It's from and they Florida. Serve, let me guess. They serve me my meal with metal, yes. metal cutlery. Yes! So I am like eating my steak <laughs> with metal. I was like, should I cut my knife with this red plastic? Oh no, what if I actually just use this the metal, metal, metal knife fucking knife that I was God given by the flight attendant? So it could not have been better. So there That's was that. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, as far as, oh, uh, we're going to mention it because again, for peace of mind and like stuff goes wrong and you mitigate air tags. Air tags are great. If you have the money and you're, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, which I'm not, but my wife is, but you put an air tag in your luggage and it was real. This is crazy. The flight, that same flight we came in on, we were separated from our luggage. It got loaded on a, on a different flight or something. And me and another dude who had a gun 
we're in the baggage office and we're like, hey, our bags didn't show up. What's up? And they're trying, they're typing, trying to figure out. And they kept insisting, no, no, no. There are literally, there were two flights both leaving within 20 minutes of each other, which is weird that they would have the same route, but it's Florida, it's destination town. And this dude's wife kept saying, no, stop saying that. Our guns are in Georgia. Look, this is my air tag. She kept showing this air tag ping in this nowhere town in the middle of very rural Georgia. And I'm like, are you thinking that somebody stole your gun case and like drove? And I was like, nothing about this makes sense. We were in the air for a number of hours. And I went, oh, and I looked and I looked at a map and I drew a line. Do you know what had happened? That's where it drops signal? There was somebody's, because AirTags ping off of any iPhone, right? Oh, via Bluetooth, right? Somebody in the cabin, it pinged off their phone. And if their phone happened to have GPS, because like phones just are always collecting data on where you are, that was the most recent check-in as we literally flew over Georgia. And that was what it was. So once the person was probably on the airline Wi-Fi and their AirTag was like, I'm here, because the AirTag doesn't report al- altitude. Right. And I, bet, <laughs> and I was like, I tried to convince the wife. I was like, I am 90% sure they're not actually lying to you. This is not a cabal of like Delta baggage handlers stealing guns. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was on our flight route. And I bet you anything. And if, like they say, wait 20 minutes, I bet your thing's going to ping in 20 minutes saying it just landed. So that was, that was wild. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, yeah. AirTags are great. I keep hearing that, and I, I have to bite the bullet and get a few of them. I got them for my my brother-in-law, actually, for his birthday because he he appreciated it. But he one of the things that he gets mad about constantly is that he'll lose his wallet or his keys mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. And yep. it'll almost me. ruin the night. He gets so upset. Well, yeah. it'll eventually find him, but it's usually because his wife moved it or something like that. So I got him a couple air tags, and I was like, this is for your wallet. This is for your keys. Cool. Like, may you yeah. never ruin our night again kind of thing. Is, uh, Not that he ever actually ruined our night, but in case you're listening. Is Tile just as good? Tile was just as good. There was oh, another no. service called TrackDot. Basically, the only problem there, they work just fine, but the ecosystem is not as pervasive, right? For Tile to work, there have to be other users of Tile because the Tile app will work with any tile that it detects. They were, it's still, there are still tiles out there. And I think Samsung was even trying to develop a competing product because there's a lot of Samsung devices. But Apple just has every iPhone out there. They don't have to be a user of AirTags. Every iPhone will pick up an AirTag and will report its location. So yeah, that just sounds like... the market penetration is the only difference there. Yeah. There's got to be some sort of like open source... like. GPS thing. I mean, I don't know. There's sure got to be something better that's like we do surveillance stuff all the time. If you want to pay, so the hard part, if you if you don't mind paying for a SIM card, like a cheap, you know, SIM card that's going to only be used for data or only going to be used for text messaging, there's loads of shady spy devices that like stalkers will use or we will use to like track executives' cars on a sure. on a surveillance job. Where if you put a SIM card in there. It's going to send like GPS pings, and it's going to send, it's going to send messages or data blips or whatever. You can roll your own. You can absolutely roll your own and do that. But then you're maintaining a SIM card for like an extra line on your phone account per month. Might be worth it. Pretty good for keeping tabs on your kids on like hikes and stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. If if they're hiking somewhere with signal, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a well. Yeah, unless you're doing some satellite funky yeah. business. I mean, you're not but... dumping your kids in Moab, being like, all right, get home. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When I said I wanted a break, I meant it. <laughs> That's I. Uh, so it's funny. I've been converting VHS tapes to. I've just been uploading them to my my computer of like mm-hmm. home movies and stuff. And I found a thirty year old nanny cam video. Oh my god! Where my mom is it good? Said, I, 
No, it's so boring. It's literally just oh. like my babysitter was great. And she's like making us a sandwich in it. I'm like, Jesus, I hope my mom was watching this and felt like a crazy person. But this camera that they used back then was a shoulder-mounted VHS like recorder. And I remember it because I remember my dad having it. Mm-hmm. It was like, you need, you had to look through the viewfinder. You rested it on your shoulder because the thing was heavy. The battery pack, I'm trying to think of what I can compare it to. The battery pack, if you were to I take like these. three soda cans mm-hmm. and put them side by side, that's, a, that's how big and about as heavy as the battery pack alone was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, you know, I wonder how, like what, we have a kid now and, you know, not that I have a nanny cam, which I actually don't. I'm not just saying that for like, in case my babysitter's listening. We have other stuff for that. But I was thinking like, I wonder how these, how far these have come. And I'm blown away the shit that you can spend money on. Mm-hmm. They have things like, you can get an iPhone charging block that has a camera oh, yeah? in it. That has a, a slot for a micro SD mm-hmm. that picks up 720p video with mm-hmm. sound it's they've yeah. got I mean pen cameras, oh, yeah. button cameras. Like it depends I keep on getting re- served an ad on Instagram and Facebook from Home Depot of all places. It's an outlet cover that has a camera built into it that's powered by the outlet you're screwing mm-hmm. it onto, and it connects to Wi-Fi and automatically backs up via an app. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Nannies beware, or abusive nannies beware, or don't yeah, be abusive. You yeah, fuck. It's never been easier to. Spy on you know people. Seriously, I mean, I have I have one like that. It's a little. It looks like it is a battery bank. It's like a little external battery charger, you know, for cell phones. Yeah, and I just leave it in my hotel room if I'm staying somewhere that I'm not too safe about. Like, is this hotel gonna be coming in here touching my stuff? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it just it looks great. like a battery bank. Yeah, Can you use it, it to charge like your phone. Yeah. Oh, it works. It's it's a real thing. Yeah, that's awesome. It just happens to have a, a little, has a camera little voltage camera yeah. on it. What do you do? Because this is actually something that I've I've thought about like traveling just just going to different places and i feel like from a general safety perspective this would be interesting what do you do when you're going to a hotel to figure out whether or not it's a safe place or a shady place are there things that you look for things that you you pay attention to at this point the super non-cool answer is that my wife and i are just like titanium elite on bonvoy so we're gonna be at a marriott property (laughs) We're just going to be there. But that's for like travel for pleasure. For work, I've stayed in some shady-ass compounds, especially overseas. And sometimes it's like dictated by who your sponsor is on that assignment. And you can't, you're like, no, I'm not going to stay on that compound. Like, no, that's where we're putting you. And outside of that zone is even worse. So we're in the freaking sandbox. But yeah, I have two things. I have a little, like a little strap that I use on the inside handle, like the thumb turn of a deadbolt. And then there's also in a really, if you're really not sure, there's a wedge. There's a wedge that goes under the door. It can like crank down and spike into the floor slightly. And yeah, I did I did a video of that. We were actually in Georgia, not Georgia the state, Georgia like the nation. And I yeah, we set it up in the hotel and I had my one of my other guys on my team try to bust the door down because I gave him my room key. He unlocked the door and he shouldered the hell out of it and he couldn't get in. He was the biggest guy on the team. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get a solid eight hours on the rack then. No, nobody's coming in here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool that they have things like that. Yeah. And when you're not there, I don't trust the room. Even in a nice property, I don't I don't trust the, you know, because a hotel's a place where just billions of staff members just have access. They can get in. There's the in-room safe, which is always bad. In-room safes exist to transfer liability. So if there is a safe, the hotelier in almost all jurisdictions is not responsible legally for theft from like your bedside. Like we offered you a safe. You didn't use it. The safe doesn't have to be good, you know? Yeah. 
And right. a lot of them, like, is. yeah, where there's, there's loads of, I talk about secret ways of popping them open. And I've tried, I showed people all, because a hotel is a great place if you want to, if you know your targets in a hotel, you check into that hotel, you have your own hotel room door that you can practice on entry. And you have the hotel room safe in your hotel room that you could practice and figure out the exploit, figure out the master override code or whatever. And then like, oh yeah, we've stolen stuff out of executives' possessions because there was a big, a big company retreat. It was actually, it was on a Disney property. And it was an exercise, so they knew. There was like a guy who had like a flag. It was a red folder. And the exercise was, can somebody get this? Fo-? And he thought he had to have it with him all the time in his laptop bag at the conference. And his company going to steal it at the conference. And he went to the lunch break and he always took his laptop bag to the lunchroom. But when he went to the, there was like, you know, come to Disney night for the staff, extra magic hours, he thought to actually put it in the in-room safe. And we knew he was going to, he, and we're like, that's where we're going to get him. So yeah, we underdoor tooled his hotel room, got to the in-room safe. We knew the master override code because we found it by messing with our safe. And I took the red folder and I swapped it with a, with a green folder. <laughs> <laughs> man, it sounds like you've got a pretty interesting job, man. Like the things that you, you get to do. Yeah. That was a rare one. Like actually targeting humans is, it's delicate. You have to do a lot of emotional work to make sure that people don't come away feeling burned. All of this is like any security training is like sparring. If your sparring partner just blasts you right in the nose and drops you to the mat and you're like, F you, hit you, see you next week. And you dust yourself off. It doesn't train you. It doesn't leave you feeling better. And you come the next week and they do a little head fake and then they blast you straight in the nose, knock you down. Like, I see you next week. Anybody could punch someone in the face, but leaving them feeling like they actually learned. Like if I throw my shoulder this way, that's a pre-attack indicator. What are you going to do? All right, now you blocked me. Good. Now let's try it. You want your opponent getting better. You want them coming away from it saying, I can't wait for my next lesson. I can see my progress. That's what security training should be about too. These companies that are hiring you, they're hiring you to learn. They're not hiring you to like punk their friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, there are people in this field that treat it like that. There are people who smile just a little too big in the selfie in the the executive's office. My buddy Bobak, I've mentioned, like he really, one time I remember this, he'll know this story. We were at a big, it was an amazing data center in Asia, very secure building. And we were actually with one of the clients who was like watching what we, we, here's all the stuff we did. He's like, show me that. And I showed him how like, I could use this tool here, this tool here. We fake out the fingerprint reader, bah, bah, bah. And I got into the data hall. And it was like, it took about 60 seconds once we chained the attack together. And he was following me with a phone because he was like documenting. And as we get in this, now we're like just miles of rack, server room, air conditioning. It was amazing. And I spun on my heels and I looked at him and he was still rolling. And I just happened to take sunglasses out of my pocket and just put them on. And I was like, and I just kind of grinned for a second. And because he had great rapport with us, right? It was great. He loved it. But I didn't know that within 45 minutes, he had posted it to their internal company intranet. And the whole security team was, now thankfully, they were laughing. They liked it. But Bobak, he was like, what if someone on that team is butthurt right now? Like that flex, that moment. And he's like, Dave, you are a fashion model. If you ever see a fashion model, their face is very neutral. It's not about them. It's about the dress, Right. Let the dress be on display. He's like, Dave, let the vuln be on display. You're on the catwalk, you're making the walk, but the vulnerability that you're showcasing, that is the dress. You are neutral. Let the vuln do the talking. And ever since then, I've tried to be much more reserved in how I document things. But a lot of guys aren't. A lot of people, like, look at me, look, I can't, I busted your shit. (laughs) That's not going to leave the client feeling good. Makes you feel cool for like five seconds. 
but it's not good for the person who hired you. Well, because they're already like in a position where they know they're vulnerable and they're coming to you to like find out how, you know, it doesn't really do them any good for you to like fucking dunk on them. I say standing up for huge companies that can fend for themselves probably. <laughs> hey, how are those companies treating their employees, you know? Like, are they going to fire the employee that clicked on the malicious link? They, they never got training it's not to? Like, that sucks. Yeah, you don't want to cause that. When you're doing this work, have you ever, like, accidentally gotten someone fired as a result of your vulnerability testing? The one time that came closest, we were subcontracted on a job for a big tech firm that was basically doing, we'll call it biomedical research. And they had a very tight facility, frankly. It was armed guards. It was a good deal. And we ultimately did get in. There's a story I've told on other shows. Like, in fact, I think it's on this other podcast that Darknet just had me on. Like, I tell the story about the armed guards. And that was a good ending. We got in. Robert was our guy. He used to be a cop. So he could, like, go in and talk cop to these guys who basically want to be cops. And, yeah, like, we got to steal their badge credentials. We got in. We did the job. And we learned from our contact who hired us because it was part of a much larger project that this company was, was on. They said, oh, yeah, do you know those guards aren't there anymore? And we're like, what? That was such a learn. Like, you could have done an after-action report with those guards, and they would have been battle-hardened. And they're like, no, their contract was coming up. They were going to be renewed or not. The actual client, they're like, they went with a different guard company after that. And I was like, so it's not like these guys lost their jobs. They just got moved to a different site, I'm sure. So instead of going with like G4S, they went with Veritas or who the hell knows. But it's like, damn, that's not what you're supposed to do. And he's like, yeah, we told the client that, but they said that they were thinking uh, maybe they got better rates or who knows what. That's the closest we ever came to something we did causing someone a downchain effect. That's wild, though. I suppose it's a good thing to keep in mind. I would hope that somebody who's coming to you like proactively is already in a mindset of like, I want to improve my team, not I want to fucking burn out all the weakness. So I want to talk a little bit about biometrics, biometric safes. Talking about security, we're talking about physical security. We can talk about like gun safes specifically because I know you had another one of those videos that kind of went viral in the gun community about the biometric safes. But maybe just in general too for like home security, like how secure are biometrics? Is a fingerprint like a password or is it like a username? A fingerprint is much more like a username because you can't change your fingerprints. Your fingerprint is something you are. It's not something you know. So I love that. You, that's a great analogy. People try to get that through people's heads when they talk about biometrics. They say, your fingerprint is not your password. It's your username. So I love that you call that out. Do I have some devices that open with a fingerprint? Yeah, I literally do. One of the little lock boxes that holds a pistol in this house is a fingerprint safe. That's fine. Because again, there's, every situation is different. We don't have kids. We will never have kids. And... We're relatively the only people in the house. It's a relatively low-value pistol. It's just where one of the carry pistols can be dropped, like, at the end of the day. It's not like our collection is behind a fingerprint. And if you've ever seen this in, like, corporate environments, the use of a fingerprint reader, it's very rare for a fingerprint or any biometric to be the only factor of authentication. A lot of really secure environments might do fingerprint and credential or fingerprint and PIN. But it's correlated with another thing. The fingerprint is just proving that the human being who is standing there is who they should be. That's not actually showing that that person has access. That's where you get a, your key card or anything like that. But for home products, I've never seen a home safe that uses like a touch card and a fingerprint and a something like that. You just don't see it. Because friction, friction and transaction time is what the home user cares about the most. Man, but if I could find a home gun safe that took a key card, 
like I would use that because mm-hmm. I love key cards. What exactly is it about fingerprints that you don't recommend? Like, why is it something that you can unlock your iPhone with a fingerprint? Now it uses facial recognition and whatnot. But what is it that's I'm assuming is easy to beat? So it's a combination of easy to beat and also easy to fail. So there's two factors that really get into it. And we can talk about gun safes first and then iPhones. I can I know a lot of the team who worked on that. So if you have a gun safe at home, again, the manufacturer's job is not to make a secure product. Their main job is to make a satisfied customer, to not have returns, right? Now, ideally, you'd like to think, like just like your job as a romantic partner is like to make someone satisfied. Well, ideally, you do it by doing XYZ the right way. But if you like just do it the cheap and simple way and you're like, well, they're satisfied, like, okay, kind of took some shortcuts there, but the end result is they're satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So if your job as a company is to like, I don't want my product getting brought to customer service and being returned, you can do that by making it the best product ever that gets all those five-star reviews on consumer reports, or you can be the product that just works really reliably. And whether someone's hands are smudged or dirty or sweaty, it always works. Well, you do that by removing how many points of comparison your algorithm uses so that your fingerprint reader always works. And that might mean even the wrong fingerprint might work or a crappy copy of your fingerprint might work. I've done like a photograph of a finger, like literally I pressed my fingerprint into a photocopier and I had like a little photocopy and I just pressed it. I had to mirror image it. And then I pressed it down like a strip of paper and I've had fingerprint safes pop open. But you know what that safe's not getting? A lot of returns of someone saying, I enrolled my thumbprint and it doesn't work because, you know, I had some dust on my hands today. So a lot of these products are meant to be very smooth experiences for the customer. That's not necessarily a secure experience for the customer. Okay, that makes total sense. That kind of makes me feel like it is similar to how your facial recognition works on your phone because of how it works with glasses on, without glasses on, sunglasses, hats, all that fun stuff. Yeah. I have a new Pixel, right? And I am sitting here angry, like, God, freaking fingerprint. God damn this thing. What it's literally doing me is saying, hey, buddy, I'm not sure that's you. I don't want to unlock. And I'm getting angry at my phone for like being secure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I understand why those facial recognition unlocks, face unlocks, their early days of that, there was footage of like people using a picture. I loved one person who took like a photo of his friend with his phone and he held his phone up to the other phone and the phone unlocked. Nowadays, Apple is doing it really well. Apple is, they literally, it's a matrix of IR dots. They're actually doing like, almost like, not motion cap, but they're doing 3D mapping. So it sprays a matrix of dots outward from the phone, and the phone is looking at 3D mapping. It's not looking at just a two-dimensional face. It's very hard to fake the iPhone one out. People have put a ton of effort into it. Just like if you've ever seen, there is footage. I have some scary footage if you want to see it. It's the reason why very at-risk individuals who work in sensitive areas or might be at risk of being detained by illegitimate authority won't use biometrics because could somebody forcibly put your thumb down? There's footage of cops holding phones to people's faces and they're like bobbing and weaving and they don't want to look. And the iPhone, if you're not looking with your eyes open, looking normally at your phone, it's probably not going to unlock. The iPhone was designed to detect that. I won't say where, but I witnessed that an unconscious person on a stretcher. And now the reason they were doing it was to find a emergency contact. But the context is obviously different there, but the content is still just as scary. And it didn't work because the person's eyes were closed. 
Yeah, he was the driver of a bus. Yeah, I remember that one. Yes, I was there for that and saw it happening and was like, that's peculiar. No way. Oh my God. I didn't know you. That's wild. I know that video. That's amazing. Yeah, well, it went nationwide because it was a passenger on the bus who was recording it happening, I believe. And I remember seeing that and being like, that's really strange. But yeah, I'm assuming it didn't work because of how that turned out. I have footage of people like in cuffs on a bench and cops are like trying to wave a phone in their face. It's really, it's kind of messed up. But it didn't unlock because the Apple team knows what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. And that makes me feel comfort when my Android... um, master race friends start making fun of me for having an iPhone, I can throw that on their face a little bit. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you, well, I I literally have a million things I want to ask you, but we just had a bunch of laws passed in Connecticut, more gun control laws. And one of them was a safe storage law, which as a responsible gun owner, I am 100% for the safe storage of your firearms, especially if you have kids, especially if you have family members that you don't want having access to your guns. I do, however, think it's kind of asinine to have a law mandating it because it's only something that can be enforced after something bad already happens. So unless you have cops coming into your house and inspecting them, which we don't, there's nothing that's really going to, it's not the speed limit sign that gets somebody to go the speed. It's the thought that a cop might be around the corner checking that makes you go the speed. For the people who did not have gun safes, who now have to get gun safes or biometric safes or whether they're going for like a stand up or something for the drawer. Are there any safes that you would specifically recommend that would be the most secure or like a nice balance between security and convenience? So assuming we're going, this is like a notch above cabinet at this point. Let's say someone says, I want quote a safe. There are some names that pop up a lot and they're long mainstay names in the industry for a reason. Fort Knox, Gardall, Liberty Safe. Honestly, AMSEC, American Security, I really like a lot because AMSEC makes each safe per order. Like, AMSEC doesn't just have a warehouse. It's why if you need an AMSEC safe, you're either going to a dealer, like a dealer might have a warehouse because they put it in order and they're storing a half a dozen safes at their shop. But like, I'll call up AMSEC and I'll be like, hey, I want the BF this and this and this, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, all right, we're looking at like six weeks like, all right, they're actually, they're making them in America. They're American security. I like them a lot. Are there other brands out there that, if you're buying your safe at a locksmith or a safe shop, you're already doing great. If you're buying your safe at Costco or at like Cabela's, I don't know. There's a lot of really, and this is not uh, rah-rah USA, but there's a lot of overseas stuff that's been flooding the market with very cheap steel for years and very thin construction. A lot of like super heavy, heavy weight in the door So it feels really heavy when the door is swinging, but the actual safe is not very well made. A lot of these use really bad insulation. They'll use like basically just drywall for insulation, for fire insulation. But that attracts a ton of moisture depending on where you live. It's not good for your guns. So you are getting what you pay for. And when I say things like Gardall or Fort Knox or Liberty or AMSEC, what I'm not saying is that it's just impenetrable because no safe is impenetrable. I'm saying it's not going to have a lot of these other little props. Like if you go buy a car, most cars are going to get you from point A to point B for a few years. Sure. But like, why are there so many, my wife and I are looking at Toyotas these days. Like, why are there so many Toyotas on the road? Because of little things, like little crap doesn't break the way it does in like, I don't know, maybe a Kia after five to 10 years. You're paying for kind of all those extra little knock-on benefits for getting a real name. Not to mention, we can talk about things. If you do have a disaster in your house, a fire, a flood, 
safes that say they are fire rated and it's just completely made up. Like there's a lot of that you see at like at Costco. And our safe is rated to 1400 degree. And like, who did the testing? Like you, you put your safe in a fire and then you said the safe was still standing at the end of the fire. Is that like, I don't know what you did. A proper fire rated safe will be tested by the underwriter's labs. It'll have an underwriter's like number. Like there'll be a foil sticker from UL and it'll say what test was performed for how many minutes at what temperature. Yeah, if you're really worried about that stuff. Even hearing you say brands like that, because the thing is when you look up gun safes, like if you Google that, you get a hundred sponsored or like, I'm not knocking anybody here, but like you'll get like guns and ammo. We'll have like a, here's top 10 gun safes to use. And it's like paid advertisement, paid advertisement, paid advertisement. And it starts to just kind of erode your trust in, not necessarily that they're being disingenuous, because I'm sure they're not, but it kind of makes you wonder, you know, like, am I making the right decision? And so it's cool to hear specific brands there. And Yeah. Every major firearms manufacturer, if you ever see their name on a safe, they did not, they did not make that safe. They're allowing their name through license to be put on some no-name safe. That's one of the big warning signs for me is like you go on Amazon and you look for gun safes. You will find the same gun safe sold by like four or five different companies with different names. And just like buying shotguns from Turkey, you see that and you start to wonder like, mm, maybe this company does not have my best interests in mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's half your listeners may have seen there's a guy on YouTube, I think Ryan George, and he has a video just called What It Feels Like Shopping on Amazon. And he's trying to buy a chair, but it's like, he clicks, and he's like, that's the same chair. He's like, no, 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 this is an entirely different model. Look, he's like, we got all these, and it's all the same chair. He's like, that's the same chair. He's like, no, 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 these are all top brands, like Florgoo, Remplo, Barbantron, Zolivio, <laughs> which is what happens is these suppliers who have accounts, and again, we're not bashing around the world here, but like they're mostly foreign companies that are beyond the reach of much of our consumer protections is how this happens. And they will just do keyboard mash almost, spin up a bunch of accounts all over Amazon because they know some of these accounts are going to get bad reviews, get flushed, or they're doing paid reviews and they're going to get kicked down in the algorithm. So they just spam the listings of the same thing that their one factory is kicking out this one gun box. And you can see it. Like, as you say, they don't even change the thumbnail images. They don't take the camera at different angles. It's the same exact listing and they'll just shovel it as hard as they can with tons of bots bumping the, this one, and in that video, he's like, or you might want to get this one, the Waysus. This one's Amazon's choice. And he goes, what does that mean? Is it the best? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, no, I, I guarantee you that's exactly what it is. There's nothing, it's completely arbitrary. It's probably what the greatest margin is, to be honest. If I had to guess, I would bet Amazon's choice means the one that most people buy after searching what you typed into the search bar. Yeah, and which one makes, there's a lot of factors. So like, it's that. It's which ones have, like, make Amazon good margin and which ones have, like, least returns. Because, again, that costs Amazon money. It's whatever says Amazon's choice, it's steering you, much like the customer who just wants to, like, Unsafe is going to open. Is it the most secure or is it the most smooth for you as a customer? Amazon's choice means most satisfied customers. Now, whether they're satisfied because it's good or satisfied because they're ignorant or satisfied because it was cheap, at the end of the day, Amazon only knows that we didn't get a lot of returns. There was a point where, when I was first starting this out, that I was using Alibaba to buy ski masks. We sell ski masks, and the ones that we still have on hand were ones that I just got from China because a ski mask is a ski mask is a ski mask. There's no like safety benefit or harm or anything like that. They're all polyester for the most part. And I was getting them from Alibaba because 
there really are no American-made polyester ski mask manufacturers. I've looked. There are some, but they're like, the customization isn't there. Anyway, the same company that was selling me ski masks also sold, quote-unquote, tactical gear. And they messaged me asking if I wanted to buy body armor, asking if I wanted to buy rifle plates. I was like, hard no. And I was like, what, like, just out of curiosity, what are these rated for? And they were like, oh, level three, level four, like all this, they were using the right lingo, but I was like, there's no fucking way. And they were like $34 a plate, $35 a plate. If you still have those links, because I really want to buy those now and have like Carl or Tactical Girlfriend, shoot them. Oh, you know, I will. I will send you those because I probably still have them in a chat somewhere. I couldn't do it because I have to buy Body armor face-to-face in Connecticut. I will absolutely send those to you because I'm sure I can find them. I was like, what? They sell level 3A helmets, supposedly. Helmets for like $45, $50, stuff like that. And I would love to see how they hold up. But I think uh, Demo Ranch did a Wish.com body armor video. And I don't know how different Wish.com is from Alibaba. It's all the same stuff. Yeah, probably. Yeah, because very rarely can you buy like a one-off off of Alibaba. Wish.com is like where people who buy off of Alibaba go to sell their stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Wish.com is a little more friction-free transaction for Western markets. Alibaba is a little bit clunky. Alibaba is definitely not a very good user interface. I will say like everyone was very friendly for the most part and very informative, but I wanted to get away from that as quickly as possible because you don't know what the conditions people are working in. And yeah, it was... Very quickly, like an ethical thing, especially after that. One of my favorite, just because you're talking Alibaba, one of my favorite stories, it has to, we're talking about credentialed key cards, right? So we do a ton of access control hacking and a lot of RFID, copy, break, clone, shady credential stuff. And this is going back years when this happened, but there is a type of modern credential, relatively modern, it's broken now, MyFair Classic. Now we use Desfire, but... My Fair Classic credentials, there was a, it was called a secret Chinese credential. And it was just known as like the magic Chinese card because you could write data to like sectors of the card, but you could also change like block zero, which is the card serial number, which is, you're not supposed to ever be able to change that, right? So getting a magic Chinese card was a hot thing. And we wanted to use these in training classes. We wanted to show people how to clone MyFair. And so Bobak is like, he buys our credentials. He's going on Alibaba and other overseas suppliers. And he was asking, oh, I see. And he was making some big, it was like, can I get some T55 chips? And can I get some of these PicoPass? And he's like, oh, I see. He was asking a few of these vendors the same question. He's like, I see you sell MyFair Classic. Um, what pricing do you have? Do you have this fob, as key card? He says, I'd also like to get some of those MyFair Classic I've seen that the UID, the block zero, is changeable. Just to see what they would say, right? And most people didn't respond. One person responded and said, no, we do not sell anything like that. That is illegal. And Bobak's like, I'm not going to just take a no. He's like, let's shoot a Hail Mary. He says, no, you see, I'm actually a researcher. This is for research purposes. This is my professional work. Are you sure? And they said, well, and this is like in the Alibaba, that chat window, right? And he's like, well, Email me, it was like a Gmail address, like out of chat, you know. So Bobak sends him an email. He's like, hi, I'm that researcher. And within like five minutes, he got back a PDF catalog with like volume pricing. Like a market of like, this is all the ships we have. This is the shady Chinese credentials. This is if you want 500, 1,000, like, what do you need? Like, <laughs> Why would a single researcher ever need 1,000 of these? Right. 
So yeah, they had the marketing like ready to go and like a payment structure. And he was like, oh, go, cool. we can order some of these now. Talking about uh, keywords for, for massage parlors. <laughs> Use the term researcher and drop trow. I'm here for research. Exactly. <laughs> As if that makes it less illegal. Yes, I'm researching drugs. For all of you listening, the reason he's saying that is the B-roll, that pre-show stuff. This is the, the patrons know why we're talking about day spas. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, that wasn't on the main. That wasn't on the main episode. This is the benefits you get by subscribing, folks. Subscribe to them, and you'll know why that joke is funny. Subscribe to our Patreon, and you'll know why we're talking about secret codes in massage parlors. And roll the Patreon ad. Oh, nice setup there. Yeah. <laughs> hey there, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you do like what we're about and want to support us, our Patreon is a fantastic way to do so. It allows us to improve the podcast in many ways and helps fund our alcoholic coffee beverage stash to assist on those late night recording sessions. Now you may be thinking, this podcast has me absolutely smitten and I would love nothing more than to throw money at you, but what's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you become a patron, you automatically get access to an exclusive collection of clips from the podcast not heard anywhere else. On top of that, we have a wide range of tiers available that will get you merch, discount codes, and even free gear delivered to you monthly. For any patrons currently listening to this, we are super thankful for your support and for keeping the dream alive that one day I will be able to meet Andrew and make sweet, sweet podcast magic with him in person. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash abetterway2a in the episode notes for the podcast or on the link in our Instagram bio. All right, now that's all for that. Back to the show. So you were mentioning your ski masks and stuff. I love the swag. I love that you don't just kind of, that a lot of people have swag that is essentially like a sticker or a hat. A lot of what you sell isn't, like the fact that it's from a better way to a is almost secondary to the fact that it's useful to people. Your IFAC kits, like I really do like the fact that a lot of times, like on Instagram, I'll be like, oh, that, that's a cash grab. But I never think that when your shit rolls by. And I just, I want to thank you and kind of call that out and give a little attention to that. I appreciate that, man. This guy works really hard. <laughs> Ask my wife. She'll tell you I work too hard. But I enjoy it. And I really do think that, how did we get this turned around on me? <laughs> <laughs> That's just how it works, man. I enjoy it. It is a lot of work, but I enjoy it. And at the end of the day, like, I want it to be a benefit to the people who buy stuff from me. And there is stuff like, obviously, I sell denim cat ears that go on your ear pro. Maybe not a utilitarian use for that, but I, I'm sure... I would argue that there is. Well, the whole reason I started selling these was because I got a pair. I actually ordered them from um, Hardcore Tactics is who makes them. But yeah, this isn't a way to steer you away from my competitors by any means. I actually can't remember the name of the place that I bought them. But I was like, I went to the range and a guy came up to me and he's like, oh, I thought you were one of those anime chicks or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> chicks, like I don't have long hair. And he was like, no, no, like I thought you were just like pretending kind of thing. And we just started talking that... And this was a guy that I probably would not have had a conversation with had I not had these fucking cat ears on. And I was like, you know what? This is a fantastic icebreaker. Like, if my goal is to get people into the gun community who would not otherwise be involved, this is awesome. Like, it, goal achieved. And I was like, done. And the dude who makes them is super cool. He's, he lives in Japan. He hand makes them. And I think they're great. That's dope. I love it. Yeah. Yellow Peril Tactical had a post recently, and I understand why they say this and the mentality that they're coming from with this. But they're talking about when you're going to a shooting range, blend in. Don't wear like left field kind of like, you know, don't look gay. Don't look left. You know, don't. I don't think they meant it like that. No, I'm just I'm being ungenerous because I'm making a point. Yes, yes, yes. Because they're like, if you're at risk, 
you're going to a place where you know there's going to be people that don't like you. You don't want to end up getting stalked. You don't want to end up getting harassed. You know, I completely understand what they're saying. And I think they did that specifically after those people got doxxed at that gun range. Yeah, that was my friend Chad. He was the one who got doxxed? Mm-hmm. Chad Loader took people to the range and all the people that went with him. What the f- Because someone at the range recognized them and like saw Chad's ID and then started like, because, you know, it was like you sign a liability waiver. So the other people with him had to show ID and like, Put information down. That is beyond fucked. It's scary and it sucks. And if you're already at risk, you don't want to like increase your risk. But for those of us that are willing to put up with the exposure, I think it's super important to broadcast that not everybody in your gun space is going to be like super right wing. Like you're going to meet people like me who like enjoy being around gay people. That's why we say, I remember, so my first gay friend, I didn't know he was gay at the time. I don't even think I knew what gay was, but I remember uttering the phrase, I love gay people when he came out like after years of me like having assumptions. It turns out one of my favorite people is gay. I was like, if this is gay people, I love gay people. And I remember my mom being like, what? But that's why I think it's so important for us and like why we say all the time, like, dude, we're just two straight cis dudes. Like we're not marginalized. But I think that's why it's so important to say things. And I don't want to speak over people who are, but I think amplifying a message is important. And I think using our platform, quote unquote, you can take some heat too. Dude, there are some, you see the comment sections on some of our posts, like the names people call us, like you and I, when we're both going at it, like it doesn't affect me at the end of the day because that's not who I am. And that's a privilege that I have. Every moment that someone's calling you like a beta Antifa cuck lord or whatever is a moment they're not typing on some actual marginalized person's channel, making them feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. Because immediately after I shut that off, I'm playing with my daughter. I'm like eating (laughs) food with my wife. Like I'm doing things that that doesn't hurt me because I don't have something deep down that it touches. And exactly what you said. Like I'm not some fucking Instagram martyr or anything like that. Like I'm not trying to say that. I don't want to drift into like patting ourselves on the back. No, 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 no. Until we break our arms, but. We have three of us here. I'm sorry to leave you out, Dave. Dutch rudder works three ways. Double Dutch yeah. rudder. <laughs> Triple Dutch rudder. We go in a circle or do we go across at that point? I have a picture of me and, uh, I guess this is the second time Kenny's come up in this episode. I have a picture of me and Kenny uh, Dutch ruddering each other's shotguns uh, when we were in college. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that reference multiple times in the group chat and I thought you were going somewhere else with that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever actually Dutch ruddered another man's penis, but... Uh, you don't think? I mean, I drank a lot in college. I did go to college. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't be ashamed. If you found a photo of me doing it, I'm not going to be ashamed. Like, I'd be like, please don't show it to my family. They don't want to see that. But, you know, you can tell people about it. <laughs> I'm not hiding it. But that's another thing, too, is it's like I've got, even more so than Jordan, I've got my real name on my Instagram account. Mm-hmm. I do business in San Antonio. My family name, like, people know. So it's not that hard to find me. So, like doxing me is not really like the fucking slam dunk that I think some of these people think it is for like someone who's like actively trying to hide. So like, I'm just like, I'm not super worried about that stuff. I like um, always having a few stickers like in my bag when I'm at a gun range or something, they'll wind up being posted in a bathroom or something like that. And just, yeah, by all means. Dave, how much time do you have? Because you just created a Giant, fantastic segue. The one part of our notes that isn't crossed off yet. Oh, is it about stickers? No, it's about the Cascadian movement. Oh, man, we can talk about that. The Cascadian movement is one man's American readout racist white asshole thing 
is another person's like bioregionalism, like let's go light a cop car and fire and plant a tree kind of like movement. <laughs> like Cascadia can mean a lot of different things depending on who's speaking. Right. And that's actually in my notes. I wanted to know kind of, is this like a serious separatist movement or is this like like-minded dudes kind of hanging out and being like, we need to create a counterculture. And also to what extent is this like a white ethno state fever dream? So fortunately, I'm happy to say the white ethno state side of things is virtually non-existent. And folk like that weren't going to need like the Doug flag to rally around. They're, they're going to be way out, way in the eastern regions of Oregon and some of eastern Washington. And they're going to keep doing their asshole things that they're going to do. They're, Idaho especially is a lot of organizing there that needs to be dealt with. But we'll get to that later. That's a whole different conversation. Here's a good a, a parallel. I'll come at it from this angle. American Native Indian, American Native American Indian, there's a lot of talk about whether they actually prefer to be called Indians politically or not. There's CGP Gray did an amazing unpack of that. But I will, as a white dude who grew up learning what I thought was the right thing in school, I will say First Nations people, I'll sidestep it. First Nations people in this country have been historically oppressed, are learning and organizing all the time to gain political rights and recognition. And you might ask people on the res, do you actually want the original treaties to be your own nation? And many of them will say, no, like we're okay. We are part of them. America is a very powerful, wealthy nation and has benefits. We'd rather actually just have like rights and recognition and maybe not have our land effing destroyed. But like, no, we're part of America. In the same way, Cascadia, the thing that I love about it is that it doesn't respect existing boundaries. It's not a political movement as much as it is, people will call it a bioregional viewpoint. There is a notion that this part of the country, the Cascadia region, and it's not just America, it extends up into BC. And when you ask nine different people out here, what's Cascadia, you'll get nine different answers. Like even just the boundaries of it, where the boundaries are. Some people say it's coterminous with certain states. Other people say it isn't. But what unites people is not a political view. It's not even a geographic view. It's about there are certain aspects about this place, the Pacific Northwest, that are magical in terms of our landscape, our water resources, our air, our land. And respecting those and understanding that that is something that can unite the people, not because we are the same lineage and not because we even share the same like zip codes, but just saying there's something that we benefit from that is marvelous out here. And it's the best place. I've lived a lot of places. There's the old Forrest Gump joke. I went from West Philadelphia to Western Montana to West, like, to West Seattle. And I've lived all these places. And it was like, oh, you're going to turn around when you hit the water? I used to say, yeah, because I was always on the move. And I'm like, I'm actually going to kind of stay in the Pacific Northwest. My wife's from Oregon. It's never below 40. It's never above 80. And there's no sun. I hate the sun. Fuck the sun. Like, it's perfect. <laughs> It's literally, it's England with weed and queer people. Like, it's just gray, but happy, and the ground erupts forth with food. I hunt all the time with her. We go out, we fish. We cut, like, I love oysters. You can just, we'll just drive to the canal. You walk into the canal, and you're like, I'm going to bend over with my hunting license. It's also a fishing license. I'm going to limit on oysters in 10 seconds by picking up buckets of them. You can just get a bucket of oysters, and you're like, all right, we're going to shuck these here and just, Plow them down. We want to eat them later. What do you want to do? Because you can't kill life out here. It's this haven and this bubble. And as we increasingly see legislation around the country, we're seeing even more and more and more people fleeing like oppressive areas who want to live somewhere green and beautiful and safe for their queer and trans families. 
So like, I want Cascadia to be that. I want it to be this place where people love the outdoors, where people like their neighbors, where people don't like the sun and don't like authoritarianism. That's my Cascadia. God damn. That sounds fucking awesome. I'm sorry. I keep swearing. That's I'm trying okay. not to. That Just, ship fucking sailed. <laughs> oh, sorry. man. That sounds so sick. That's not, so I've always been same boat as Andrew. Like I never knew what the Cascadia movement was. And like you said, I saw both like schools of thought. I saw cool people talking about Cascadia in cool ways. And I saw very uncool people talking about Cascadia in very uncool ways. <laughs> the separatist movement will grab the attention because it's the most arresting thing that someone's saying. But in the same way, if you see, again, like if you see a Native American person repping their tribe, they're probably not saying, and we should be our own country. They're probably just being proud of who they are, who their people are, and their shared values and the land that sustains them. So you're talking about bioregional. That makes a lot of sense. It's not saying we need to carve out by force of arms this special country for us. It's saying, you know, we're going to live how we want to live in this geographical space. Hopefully, you're not going to make it too hard for us. Mm-hmm. It's neat the way you described it is how people want to, and it's, it gets back into, like, we talked about bunker mentality and survival with guns. People want to carve out stuff in a way that's like, I'm making this gesture like mine, like pulling all the Monopoly pieces into your chest. My life and my friends between the sex work and the queer community and the poly community, like there's, my friends are all over on my Instagram feeds, amazing. Like one poly account had this beautiful meme they shared where they said, when I think of my partner and the word quote, my in quotes, they said, I don't think of it like my house. It's like my neighborhood, like my national park. It's mine, not because I own it and I need no one else to be there. It's mine because it is good to me and I care for it and I want everyone else to enjoy it and care for it. And thinking of your home in that sense, your home is, yes, it's my home, not because I'm the only one who's supposed to enjoy it. And I have like my community, not because I want you to not be in it. I want, if you're listening to this and you're like, your state's getting a little freaking hot and you're like, I don't know if our kids are going to be safe being themselves here. Come to the Pacific Northwest. I want you in my community. I want my community shared with you. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Meanwhile, I live in a neo-lib shithole. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I like Connecticut for reasons. But it's frustrating because it's like we talk about the nexus of gun rights and the right to like personal expression, right? And it seems like it's getting very difficult to find a place that will respect both of those. It is. Hello, kitty butt. Yep. Sorry, I just I no, just got right. a face full. A cat moon the camera. He wasn't, Andrew wasn't calling <laughs> it a Jordan but. impression. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking sick. But yeah, so it's like I live in Texas. I love the expanding gun rights here, which a lot of people don't know. Gun rights in Texas are expanding because they are not what a lot of people think they are. People not from Texas love to point it to like, well, in Texas, and everyone in Texas is like, you don't actually know the laws on our books. We're not Arizona. Super, like, yeah, yeah, it's not great. Arizona was fucking lit. So Texas is getting better about guns. Meanwhile, it is rolling down the cliffside on fire when it comes to personal expression, minority rights, reproductive rights, and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really hard for me to square that. My wife talks about, you know, like, we're going to have to move. We have to go, going to have to move to a different state, going to have to move to a different country. And I'm like, yeah, that would be a super easy decision to make if we could go anywhere else, if I could, like, take my guns with me. Right. Like if I could like if I could go to a place and not feel like we are one generation away from sliding into complete authoritarianism because there's nobody willing or able to like take a stand against it. 
even that's tough to say because there's a lot of people here with guns in Texas and they love the authoritarianism when it's, you know, social and religious. So it's like, you know, I, it's hard for me to even make that case that, you know, like I would be safer going somewhere where I can keep my guns because from who till when? New Mexico. And New Mexico is similar. And we talked earlier about like if you're going to present in a welcoming way, like using your privilege at the gun range, in that same vein, for as long as you can hold out, I'm not telling you how to live your life in any way, but I hope you can hold out in Texas. Because Texas, like New Mexico, is purple already. And it's going to pop blue. And that's going to be really interesting because it's going to pop pro-gun blue. And that's going to be a very interesting day when we get a major state with tons of electoral votes that is pro-gun and pro-people. As soon as the Democrats here can figure out to just drop gun control as an issue entirely. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yes. If they can just fucking drop it. If they can just be like, you know what? Never mind. Spray paint it on the fucking walls. If you drop gun control, you will never lose an election again. It would push them over. I don't know about that, but yep. it would push them over the... No, no, no. I was overstating it, but they would win in a landslide and then the conservatives would have to wonder, would be forced to think what they have to drop in order to reappeal to the fence sitters. I think that there's plenty of people here that would love to vote for someone who is pro-gun, who is pro-reproductive rights, I don't know that there's a lot of open borders people in Texas, but I know that there's a lot of people that want easier immigration. So, I mean, and these are things that should line up pretty well with the Texan Democrat. For whatever reason, the National Party, all the people providing the funding, they are so fucking stuck on gun control that they are going to let the Republicans drag us back into the fucking dark ages before they let that happen. But I will tell you, if any of my kids turn out trans, nobody's coming for them. It's not going to happen. Well, and that's the thing that, you know, I harp on is that at its core, gun rights protect all other rights, but only if people are willing to, I hate to say it, but use the threat of violence to protect their rights. And I don't want things to get to that point. Somebody, I, I hate blocking people and I hate restricting people on the page, but once you show that you're not arguing in good faith and you're being rude and being an asshole just to be an asshole, that's what I have to do. I'm sorry. And this person was saying that and saying like, Advocating for the rights of minorities to be armed is essentially using them as cannon fodder because you want them to use guns to fight for their rights. You're bloodthirsty, essentially, is what he was saying. And I was like, I don't want that. And I said the same thing to a conservative recently. So, like, he was saying, oh, well, I was trying to convince him that we need to reach across the aisle and talk to people. And he was like, I don't need to talk to these people they want to take my guns away. They want to restrict my rights. I'm like, well, who is they? Like, you realize you're making these large generalizations about people who have kids who are just, a lot of them are just earnestly scared for their kids and don't understand the full argument. And he was saying, well, no, they're not coming from my guns. Like, I'll defend it with my life. And I'm trying to explain to him, why would you want it to get to that point? First of all, that, that guy won't because who's coming for his guns is going to be the police. And I'm sure he's got a Blue Lives Matter flag on his car or something. Even if you were 100% convinced that you were going to, why would you want it to get to that point? And likewise, why would I want my trans friends to have to use guns to protect their rights? That it makes zero sense. And that's why... It's a fundamental misunderstanding of like why people arm up as a community. It's like the fucking Swalwell argument. Oh, you're going to need F-16s. Nobody thinks that they're going to use an AR-15 to shoot down an F-16. The thing is that the number of people armed with rifles in the community you're trying to disarm is going to determine whether or not somebody even starts down that road. They know they can do it if they spend enough money, they spend enough lives, 
they root enough people out of these neighborhoods. They can take whatever they want with time, with blood, you know. They're not going to start that process if they think they're going to run out of political will, uh, if they're going to run out of manpower before it's finished. Exactly. And these people who are saying, what are you going to go up against an F-15, are making the assumption that the government wants to bomb entire neighborhoods of American citizens also. And if we, granted, if we got to that point, it doesn't matter what your beliefs are at that point. Also, I'll make this point. Let's assume it's completely apocalyptic and F-16 pilots are bombing neighborhoods of gun owners or trans people or whatever they're trying to do. Whatever fucking psycho apocalyptic scenario there is. Remember, F-16 pilots have families and their families have homes. (laughs) We just, yes. It's always important to remember the people who are doing everything in this world that is evil. Like, they all have names and addresses. That is absolutely true. That is a very good line. But every really awful outcome in human history, before it ever got to the point of, like, armies, I'm not talking about two nations fighting. I'm talking about every awful outcome to a marginalized group. Before armies and even, like, mainstream authority figures, like police brigades get involved, it's always been stochastic terrorism first. It's always been ostensibly unaligned, like out of uniform, non-state actors running amok, terrorizing people. And the neighborhoods where that was not put up with, like that shit didn't fly, people lived. That might still have been a political movement that ultimately succeeded, an authoritarian movement, but the neighborhoods that put up a fight are neighborhoods where people could get as many people as they could out. That night, that week, that month, and it might come down to that. For some people in some really, really dodgy states, you don't have to be the one engaging. Like, you're, yes, your rifle's not going to engage against the massive power of the state. Your rifle might keep you alive long enough for some horrible night of the long knives and crystal knocked, or who the hell knows what, that then you're like, we're packing the car and we're driving to Washington State because we're not staying here anymore. Or, you know, like, hey, I've got a bus in my backyard and I'm taking as many of you with me as I can. Yeah, yeah. The firearm doesn't get you to the end of the book. It gets you to the next page. Oh, very true. Oh, that's so good. Fuck. Say it. I don't, I wasn't trying to cheapen it by saying that. I, that is such a good point. And it's something that I think people fail to realize that I think on, on both sides, people who are gun thirsty, the stereotypical gun nut that the left would call them, think that they're going to survive in their bunker forever with their AR and their canned goods. And the people on the left who are anti-gun think that that person is planning on doing that or that they're not going to be able to hold out at all because of F-16s when it is in reality somewhere in the middle. Right. It's a bunch of skinheads with bricks and, you know, machetes. And not the good kind. The good kind of bricks because we're in Pride Month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, the the good, dude, I was like two years ago old when I found out there were good skinheads. Yeah, sharps. I found it out from, shout out to Northwest Terror on Instagram for explaining skinheads to me. I didn't know who they were. Like, I, I had friends who were in the punk scene growing up, but I didn't know that, like, skinheads were. My dad is Jewish, so my dad would always talk about skinheads and I'd think neo-Nazis. And I didn't know that the people in the punk scene who were beating up neo-Nazis were also called skinheads. The world, as ever, is complicated. Yes, absolutely. I just looked down. We've been talking for almost three hours or something. Bro, I'm saying. That's nuts. Well, we hit on everything in our little notes, man. I mean, I'm happy to keep talking to you, but I also realize you have a life. And uh, I'm sure at some point or another, my wife is going to wander down here and wonder if I fell asleep on my chair. This is like I, I can. This is like new relationship energy, right? Where you're just staying up all night on the phone. And <laughs> what you can do this, okay, yeah, like I will. 
You can end it with like complete screwball stuff, like pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Creamy or crunchy peanut butter? What do you think? We do have a tradition, you know. If you make it to the end of the podcast, you know that we like to ask for like open-ended advice on anything from like grandiose, like moral stuff to like just very granular, tiny little quality of life tips. Because I feel like everybody's got like one goofy little thing. Literally granular. Our first piece of advice was Andrew telling me how to use citric acid to clean my dishwasher. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. I love that. You can buy a bag of that on Amazon. And turn your hot water on for like in your sink for 20 seconds or so before you start your dishwasher. Even the most landlord special dishwashers will do great. Better than you think they can. My friend Alec has a YouTube channel called Technology Connections. And his video, literally about dishwashers, some of the most informative stuff ever. You talked about camcorders. I was like thinking of Alec's stuff on VHS. Like, <laughs> great channel. I love to bump Alec all the time. What's it called? Technology Connections. Sweetest human being you could ever imagine, too. Just lovely, lovely person. We'll put it in the show notes. I was an old man when I realized that dishwashers do not constantly draw water. They fill up with water, then recycle the water and heat it as they go. Every six months in my Amazon, I have an automatic delivery of this product. I don't know if it Cascade makes, somebody makes it. It's essentially a deep clean for your dishwasher. It's just a bottle and the lid even has a wax plug. So what you do is you just turn it upside down and stick it in the dishwasher and run it empty. And then when the water gets hot, the wax plug melts and it descales the whole dishwasher. And every six months, Amazon shows up this product. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should descale the dishwasher. Because again, we rent. It's a complete shitbox dishwasher. But you'd run the water hot, you use that citric acid, and you descale it once in a while. A little jet dry for all your barware. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving you the end of show advice. And like, That's not it. Even the That's show. it, like, man. This go. is what people stay for. <laughs> I'll have to find that uh, product and link it in the show notes. I'll give it to you. I'll send you the link. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That plus get enough goddamn sleep. When we're all young, and you're like, I can stay up later than you, especially in, in the hacker world. Tell me anything other than that because it's something that I'm not going to listen to. I need to sleep. I don't sleep nearly enough. I have horrible sleep hygiene. People ask me on I, a recent, I get Q&A stuff all the time because a lot of my videos are my hands. Someone said, Dave, why do you have a second ring? Is this like a poly thing or what, what's going on? I was like, no, no, no. It's nothing. It's called an aura ring. A lot of my friends got this now. Instead, it's like it is a bio tracker. Like it does pulse ox, body temp, heart rate, sleep schedule, breathing. And it's super low power. You wear it for like, I can wear mine for almost a week without recharging it. And it'll just gather this data. So it tells me at night. And because now, again, young, angry me would have hated this because like they're getting my data. But I'm like, dude, I'm literally reading my data on my phone, which already has most of my data. But I can look at like my sleep for the night. I can look and see like this is during the night, my REM sleep, my non-REM sleep. And I'm like getting data about my sleep each night. And my wife has the same thing. We're like, so we were out drinking late. No, we drank a little less. So we're like dialing it in. How much booze should I have? What night should I stay dry? Like sleep, the older you get, man, that's, I wish younger me was told. I would be in so much better shape now if someone was like, no one is going to remember how late you stayed up all those nights except you. No one cares. Just go to sleep, man. I found out that it has a name. It's called, for people who feel like they don't have enough time during the day, and that their days are out of control, that they use after hours time to feel like they have time to decompress and control. And I 100% identify with that. I solved it just by never getting up until I get up at like 10 a.m. Because <laughs> I don't have kids. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you can't do that. 
<laughs> Fuck you. Actually, I shouldn't I say that. My wife lets me sleep in sometimes too. So. You did this to you. You had kids. <laughs> I did. I, I signed up for it. I was a dog sitter with a daycare that started at uh, sunrise for years before that. So I was, I already broke myself of uh, sleeping in. But in college, it was nuts. It was a combination of that, like wanting to control my time, being depressed. And so there was insomnia. Also, I have delayed sleep phase disorder. So, like, my circadian rhythm's already fucked up. And also, drinking a lot fucks up your sleep. We learned that my wife sleeps really badly with alcohol and that I sleep like a stone. (laughs) 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 That's not fair. Do you sleep hard? I'll be out, but I won't get into REM sleep. I've seen, like, my watch tells me that kind of stuff. If I go to sleep drunk, I don't remember waking up or stirring in the middle of the night, but it says my REM sleep is significantly less. I get very little REM sleep all the time, actually. It's really weird. Yeah, no matter what I do, I get low REM sleep. It's strange. I do think that I've read that not everybody needs eight hours. Not everybody's eight hours begin at nine and end at five and all things like that. I remember my schedule when I worked at an adult entertainment store was I felt the most well-rested I would get out of work at 2 a.m. I'd go to sleep at like 4 and I'd wake up at like 10 to noon or something like that. I'd wake up and I felt amazing for like the couple hours before I'd go back into work. I felt great, well rested and ready to take on another night selling dildos. Well, you know, if you're getting all that <laughs> cardio you were getting on your break time, it's good to get heart rate up throughout the day. So that's Exactly, probably exactly. That was a fun job. Anyway, we've come a long way. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was a phenomenal episode, and we can't thank you enough for coming on. I loved it. I'm not joking about new relationship energy. Like, let the viewers listen. Let people ask more questions and come back with, like, I'll come back with new stories and shit if you want. Yeah, I love this. This was great. We were looking forward to this. this is, like you said, it was like we were edging for months trying to get, <laughs> trying to, we, had, we booked you out like three, what was it, four oh, months? Oh, God, yeah. My schedule is like that, man. No, same. I wish... So we have the Calendly, which I think we used with you. It's so great to use, but I cannot tell you the amount of people who I send it to. And I'm like, hey, use this to book a day. And they just don't get back to me. But because they want us to be like, hey, how about this day? Does this day work on this time? And I get that because it different strokes for different folks. People schedule things differently. But for me, it's like, it's so good just to have an app that does it. Yeah, we have a couple people in the works right now trying to schedule they're going to be good. Yeah, Eddie, I feel so bad. Eddie's in Ukraine right now. He's, he's our buddy that we were doing the benefit for. I've been seeing that, yeah. He's a super cool guy. He's literally over there spending his own money for the most part, other than like what we send him, just helping out civilians, bringing water to people who decide to stay in their cities. He was handing out medical goods, food, blankets. And we're at his mercy because he's literally in like a warring country right now. And he's like, ah, he texted me yesterday and he's like, I'm free this weekend. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do it this weekend. And he's like, all right, no big deal. <laughs> like, he's so cool and so chill. Like, I just, I want to have him on the show. Well, yes, thank you again, man, for coming on. Yeah, it'll be a couple weeks before this comes out, but we are super pumped. Definitely pumped to get the Patreon out. So anyone who's listening, if you're not uh, not on the Patreon, not twisting your arm, but it's some quality content. But you got to get in there. There's like, there's literally like 45 minutes of just premium shit that you're missing out on. Totally premium. And something that you'll never hear anywhere else. Can't give it away. There's a paywall there. <laughs> Subscribe for more. Anyway, <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. Oh, 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 oh,
Thank you.